Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And on this episode, we turn to a familiar source of news, one that dominated the landscape for decades, but is seeing changes in recent years. We're talking about TV news. Cable news, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and the like have seen growing viewership. Though the numbers seem to be plateauing or dropping a bit now that the 2020 election is in the rearview mirror. As for local TV news, it had seen declining viewership until last year when it got a boost during the pandemic and people sought information about what was happening in their own backyard with COVID-19. So where does TV news stand right now and what does the future hold for it? To help us look at those questions and more, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Amanda Sturgill, Associate Professor of Journalism at Elon University and author of the book, Detecting Deception, Fighting Fake News. Dr. Sturgill, we appreciate you taking some time to join us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. We're glad to have you with us. I am so glad to be here. So like news in so many other mediums, TV news is hardly your mom and dad's TV news. Uh, the days of the 6 and 11 local news and the dominance of the evening network news appears to be long gone. Writ large, how has TV news adapted to the changing media landscape compared to, to news in other mediums? So I guess I would take issue with the idea that TV news is not your mom and dad's. I think they are the ones who are still there in the audience. But you're right that TV news as an industry has had to adapt as their audience has grown grayer and has shrunk in size. We've seen a group of media and adults that have sort of slipped away from regular appointment viewing of TV news into news online and on social media. And so TV news outlets need to actually reach those audiences there. And just kind of looking at the numbers, studies have shown that local TV news viewership has, was trending down in recent years until last year when it appears the COVID-19 pandemic you know, brought some people back. Um, let's, let's dig in a little bit there. Where do things stand with local TV news viewership? And, and what does that bump last year in viewership during the pandemic say to you about where local TV news is right now? So TV news of all sorts is cyclical. They tend to um, increase their viewers, and they also tend to increase their income during years when there's a lot of political news, which there certainly was last year. And I think you can sort of add the pandemic into that. More people were at home, and they had more of a need to sort of surveil their environment. So that probably accounts for some of the bump. One of the things that is interesting is that although the audience for um, TV news is shrinking, the money has not really been as much of a problem. So the challenges that they face are kind of different ones. You can see that um, television news is now carrying some of the burden of print news, 
the financial model shift has been quite devastating to print news. Uh, whole newspapers have folded or let go of no, many of their staff. And so in that news is sort of the first draft of history, the burden of creating that first draft is falling some on broadcast. That leads to two different types of challenges. Uh, the first one is that when you're trying to attract that audience, analysis programs do well, but audiences don't always tell the difference between news and opinion, right? So news is someone telling you the facts so that you can make up your own mind, but analysis could be someone telling you the facts with context to help you understand it, but is shifting more into giving you some facts in order to sort of persuade you to think in a particular way. And that is kind of contrary to the first draft of history notion that television is picking up from other news outlets. I think the other threat that they're facing is that it's really easy now to create content that looks like news. And that is sort of a two-edged sword, where edge one is that more people have access to create and share content. So you can actually get out of major markets and tell more local stories direct to online, and more people can do it because the technology is easier to use. The other side, though, is that it's easy to create disinformation and misinformation that just fools the audience and makes them believe false things. I'm curious what you think uh, the impact uh, of these kind of changes in this changing landscape is on on kind of the actual content itself. I mean, for the longest time, you know, when I was growing up, a, a lot of when people talked about TV news, they talked about the idea of, you know, when it bleeds, it leads. It, is is that changed because of the changing landscape, or is that is there still a, a heavy element of that as well? There's still a heavy element of the visual. I would say that the content of the stories themselves has somewhat gotten more sensational, um, even the way that you're sort of breaking down the broadcast and putting in the um, little bits that are you know taking you from place to place in the broadcast and previewing the next part. You know, they're trying to make some changes to the format to keep viewers that go through there. But again, if I'm a TV news outlet, I'm really not just seeing myself as a 6 and a 10 or probably a 6 and a 12, a 6 and a 10 or something like that. But I'm seeing myself as a 24-hour news outlet that is producing in multiple media all the time. Let's move into the national realm, which is clearly a 24-7 operation when you talk about cable TV news and, and, and network news. Um, what do we know about how many people are, are still watching there and, and who they are demographically? Yeah, so um, cable news is doing pretty well. They have, they're also losing some viewers, but not as many as um, local news percentage-wise. Um, and they, you know, they're still gaining that audience. They still have that kind of appointment-y audience, um, which is getting pushed in also by other media, so um, social media promotion as well as um, talk radio promotion that is pushing people to some cable news. Uh, so I, I want to just talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges that TV news faces. You, you kind of alluded to some of them, them earlier. Uh, but in, in terms of keeping and building that viewership and, and, and making sure in both cases the revenue is what they need it to be, um, you, know, what, you know, what are some of the, the maybe specific challenges that they face? And, and how do those challenges compare to what, the, what print media is having to face and, and having to navigate in this, in this time? Okay. Advertising is still present for um, TV news, both at the local level and at the national level. The fact that we tend to not just have election years now, but we tend to have large amounts of political news that does pull in a certain kind of an audience and advertisers recognize that that audience is there. On the local level, there are some things that people just need to know are there and available in their community to buy. So local car dealers and sometimes grocery stores and you know, those kinds of things will still have a need to do sort of mass market advertising. Um, they also have the ability to generate revenue through um, their websites by getting audience 
to come to the website and possibly come to the website first, um, and they can sell ads there in a targeted way. Generally speaking, I think broadcast has been a little bit more successful at um, making money off of advertising, particularly at the local level and having advertisers sort of come in, or sorry, having audience come in for those advertisers through the website. Is there a distinction to be drawn between major market TV news and smaller market TV news where it feels like maybe there's more pressures on the smaller markets in that in that revenue? And then conversely, that means probably fewer staff, more one-man bands and things like that. Uh, is there is there a, a strong kind of gulf between those two versions of local TV news? Uh, yes. Um, usually, major market TV news may be a little bit closer to kind of network level and have, you know, better access to support with that. Um, local market TV news usually has to be more sensitive to the individuals who are in the audience for that news, and that can sometimes maybe shift the tone of content a little bit um, because these are, you know, people that you're very close to. Your kids go to school with them, and you see them at the grocery store and those kind of things. And so that can sort of change the tenor of the things that you cover depending on what's going on in your community. Um, financially, in something like a pandemic, a major market is going to have more access to other kinds of businesses, and also because they reach larger numbers of people, more national-level um, advertising dollars can be spent there, uh, whereas the local market's going to struggle a little bit more with that. I want to talk about another issue that's gotten some attention, and that's the consolidation of ownership of, of local stations, specifically, for example, Sinclair having hundreds of stations and questions being raised about some of the content that they're mandating air across of those stations. Uh, Sinclair did have its effort to purchase Tribune-owned stations halted last year, but is there still kind of a, a bigger picture concern about fewer hands owning the majority of stations, kind of what radio saw happen a lot uh, kind of just before that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is true across media. So anytime that you have consolidation, you are reducing the variety of voices and places for people to get information, right? You're reducing the choices that viewers have, and in that viewers do have agency when they have choices, that can help to shift the coverage in directions that are suitable for, you know, maybe that local community. So you can think of it, we talk about like having a free marketplace of ideas, and the size of that market becomes less free if the message is being controlled through consolidation of ownership. And I guess the other other concern there would be kind of a top-down mandate on on what's being covered and and kind of a, a almost a homogenous version of news that, that goes across multiple markets as opposed to maybe being more focused on what's happening in, in an individual market. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's not unique to television. That's right. something that you're seeing in newspapers as well. So having talked about that, where does public trust fit into all this? I mean, local news, TV, and otherwise still seems to have, at least when you look at, at, at polls and surveys, solid public trust. But in an increasingly polarized environment, especially politically, you know, can that continue? Will that eventually more or less trickle down even into to local news, TV and otherwise? Local news has the advantage that you can sort of verify with your own eyes if things are true, whereas national news generally you're only finding out about that in some kind of mediated way. Um, we know that trust of the media and trust in particular of television news was already eroding uh, kind of moving into 2016, when I would say there was a fairly major shift in the U.S. information environment. There was a bigger fall in that after um, 2016, 
with the idea of um, fake news as sort of a memeable, hashtagable, easily shared kind of thing to share, and changing away from news that had an inaccuracy in it to news that maybe the newsmaker didn't like, right? So it was basically, it became sort of an easy ad hominem attack for the media. I expect that you would see that locally as well. Is that a, is that a tougher thing for TV news to fight based on, you know, you know, I guess if you look at some other mediums, particularly say like print, I mean, you, you have the, the benefit of maybe perhaps being able to, d- to dig deeper into stories, um, particularly when we're talking kind of like the the day the day to day news than than TV which does have to operate more in, in shorter features or sound bites and things like that does that does that hurt the ability to kind of maintain that trust if if people don't feel like they're in, for lack of better terms getting the whole story for TV viewers only yes um, I think in the case of both print and in broadcast uh, the trend has been to be using affiliated websites to actually provide links to primary source documents. Um, to provide sort of interpretive things where you take data and maybe do data visualizations and those kind of things. And that can be helpful for some skeptical members of the audience. But you're right that if you're just watching, you know, a 90-second, you know, little clip on a news station, then it's hard to go back and, like, verify original sources of that information. So you mentioned the idea of of fake news, and and we mentioned at the top of your book, uh, Detecting Deception, Fighting Fake News. In that book, you talk about things like distractions and deception, unrelated evidence, issues with numbers. Are there any of these issues that that you feel are more prevalent to TV news than other mediums that you you were examining in that book? Yes. Um, So anything in the news environment is a good bit more deconstructed than it used to be. So it used to be that, um, you know, dead trees would arrive on your doorstep in a package, or you had your 30 minutes that you spent with Dan Rather at night that were um, all packaged together, and it was easy to see what news was. But people are now getting news in multiple different ways at multiple different times of the day. We have less of what we call appointment viewing for TV news. Um, Even if people are looking at your actual package, they're seeing one piece of a whole broadcast on a website that makes it harder to understand context. Also, there is um, a big demand for live video. And so this is live video that sometimes comes from um, TV news itself. And TV news gets pressured to do that because now anybody can be a live broadcaster with a device in their pocket. And so um, more things are getting carried live. What we saw is that news outlets got better at fact-checking. So actual, is information correct or is information not correct kind of things? Um, even sometimes in a live context, you know, they could put something on the bottom that says, you know, this wasn't true. Um, they are not as good at checking these deceptive bits of language where people are trying to um, basically say something that's not actually untrue but makes you think the wrong thing. And so an example I could give you from the news that's going on this week is the um, trial, the Chauvin trial mm-hmm. over the um, death of George Floyd. And So you will see people saying things, you know, sometimes these are getting broadcast live as people are giving their opinions or being, you know, asked about stuff saying, well, George Floyd um, maybe passed a counterfeit bill. I don't think this is a settled matter of fact, and he was not on trial and convicted for anything, but that is something people accuse him of. That is a logic error, right? Because you're basically attacking someone's character and then sort of implying that um, anything else that happened is a result of that. And people just kind of goes by and people can't think quickly enough to think, well, that doesn't make sense or that's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about right now. So with with the mind, are there ways people can be better consumers of TV news or, or any news for that, that matter? 
Um, I know I saw in one place you had suggested perhaps there is, and this is what you were kind of alluding to just a moment ago, to go beyond fact-checking and do sense-checking. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, about what, what you mean by sense-checking? Yeah. So I suggest thinking about um, sort of a three-part test when you see bits of information. Um, so who is the information being shared by? Why would that person be sharing that information? And then is the information actually coming with any evidence? Um, and if you think about those things, as new pieces of information come in, that can help you sometimes to identify um, disinformation or when it's being spread as misinformation. I also think it's helpful to look for information from a variety of different sources. Um, people will tend to have one or two things that they like and follow all the time, or they will get information from anywhere and not think about where it comes from. And I don't think either of those are very robust strategies, and it's better to have you know, a variety of sources from different points of view that you look at regularly to try to understand things in their context. Is that particularly true at the national cable news level? I mean, we, we hear a lot of people talk all the time about people kind of get into their echo chambers, whether it be Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. That, is that more of an issue, do you think, there at that national level that people can kind of get stuck in one particular bubble and not be seeing anything else that, that might challenge what they're hearing? I think it is true at the national level. I think it's true with social media that you might choose to follow, whether that's from news or whether that's from people who comment on news who tend to have a large following. Um, I think it can also be true at the local level that you can have, you know, if you have a local TV station that has one particular point of view and you only watch that TV station, you're not going to know about other things. And I guess as you look into the future, you know, where do you see TV news going? What's what's its role? What's its role likely to look like in five or ten years? Uh, you you mentioned at the top that it that it, it's still kind of serving the same audience, mom and dad. Um, it's had a change in a lot of ways. You know, how, how does it kind of continue to, to move along that path? As as again, a lot of that audience that it's been able to hold on to starts to to disappear. Right. So what they're going to need to be doing is attracting audiences to their information. And I would, if I was predicting, I would see kind of two things. One is you're seeing more of a move toward kind of longer form documentary style pieces that in some cases use almost like narrative techniques to tell stories. And those um, tend to be attractive to audiences. And the other is that uh, I think the news is going to get increasingly fragmented that um, you you can still think broadcast first right now, right? I'm preparing for this show, but that you're actually going to be thinking social first as a way to um, get the stories out to the audiences. The challenge is going to be then making that into a model where you can still afford to pay your employees to gather that news. I was going to say, I guess the, it, it does become a situation where you may, <laughs> you talked earlier kind of about the, the, you know, the first draft of history and TV news has kind of taken a little bit of that on from, from print news. It, it seems like there may be within that first draft, the almost first first draft that you see on social platforms, whether it be from TV or otherwise, before you get maybe that kind of more reflective first draft in a, in a formal program, whether it be a nightly TV news show or a radio program or something like that. And that's actually an interesting thing. So I've done a little bit of research on uh, crisis communication by news organizations on social media. Mm -hmm. And this is an example of where like a variety of sources can be useful. So if you wanted to know what was happening with a shooting in a particular city, you will get more accurate social media information from the local outlet than you will from all the national outlets that are covering it. So people have to kind of learn to, to filter and where to look first if they want to get that first initial piece of news 
before you know, before there's again that that kind of maybe more longer thought out version of the story. Right. So you might see it first from a large cable network, for example, but then you would want to go and find the local TV station or the local newspaper and follow their feed if you want like the most accurate information sooner. Yeah, certainly, because those are the people who are on the ground there. Normally, they, they have sources already and, and things like that. Exactly. So uh, we, we like to end the podcast by asking each of our guests the same question, and that is, where do you get your news on a daily basis? What are your kind of favorite or go-to news sources? Okay, so I'm a journalism professor, so this is going to be a long list. <laughs> um, I look at the websites for CNN and for Fox News. I look at the websites and occasionally the broadcasts for our, my local ABC and NBC affiliates. I subscribe, so I do pay for news, and I do recommend doing that if you want news to be around in the future. I subscribe to uh, our local newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observer, as well as um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. And I also um, am a sustaining member of our NPR station and listen to them. Awesome. Dr. Amanda Sturgill, Associate Professor of Journalism at Elon University and author of the book, Detecting Deception, Fighting Fake News. We thank you for joining us on this edition of the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.